the Farm Advisory Service podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government. Hello and welcome to this Farm Advisory Service podcast. My name is Alec Perry and this is Thrill of the Hill. In today's episode of Thrill of the Hill, I sit down with Phil Knott of the Nature Friendly Farming Network and we discuss the reasons for Scotland's biodiversity decline, how crofting contributes to biodiversity and our hopes for an outcome-based environmental scheme for Scotland moving into the future. Hello Phil, how's it going? Very good, very good. Thanks for having us on. No, we're, we're glad to have you on. It's uh, It's been a long time coming. Um, Phil, can you get us kicked off and give us a bit of your background? Um, mention some of the work you do and uh, what it means to be part of the, the Nature Friendly Farming Network. Certainly, yes. Yeah. So I, I've come into farming and crofting from a different angle. So my, my background is actually from conservation. So I, I've come in uh, with a wildlife background working on a lot of places across Scotland, uh, Shetland, Orkney, across the Highlands, uh, and now globally as well on a lot of uh, wildlife conservation and nature tourism projects. So my, my passion has always been nature of, of different types, particularly birds, I suppose. And then it, that led to employment. I was very lucky, one of the few folk to kind of get full-time employment in conservation. Um, but always with a, an eye to the land, uh, I've always wanted to manage land and, and be involved with land management and, and take things further. And the opportunity to get a croft came up uh, six years ago, and I was able to put some of my uh, thoughts and theories into practice alongside uh, other crofters and farmers. So I, I came into it from a, from a different angle. Um, but that, that adds a, a different slant to it, and, and I, that's, that's quite quite valuable. Um, and I, I certainly see all approaches and all sides. Um, we certainly need a lot more middle ground when it comes to farming and conservation, and there's kind of uh, often polarised arguments. Uh, and then I, I, I heard of the, the NFFN, the Nature Friendly Farming Network, about a year after its inception. It's about three years old now. And I heard a couple of years ago, and I thought, that's that's what we need, really. I, I think we, we need networks of, of folk, uh, loads of people doing amazing things across Scotland, across the UK. Um, but farming is quite isolated, really. Uh, and from a social perspective, speaking as a crofter here, there's not so many events and gatherings, unless you're at the marts and things uh, with your stock. There's not so many events to get people together. So a lot of these stories are going untold. And so I wanted to, to join a network and, and I approached the network uh, and very quickly uh, worked my way onto the, the steering group for, for Scotland and um, I think we're, we're making uh, some pretty big impacts now and we're well known across the, the agricultural world um, and so that's just in, in a few years really we've, we've risen up and now we're taking on staff and it's uh, yeah, it's going from strength to strength. Brilliant, no it sounds good. Can you um, give us a bit of an outline of what it is that you are doing with the Croft on, on Sky? So our croft, we're coming at it from a slightly different angle. Um, so it was planted with trees before we arrived. So it's quite unusual in that aspect. It was it was under, a, I think, a woodland grant scheme maybe 15 years ago. So we, we took on a croft um, with essentially 10 years of tree growth. And so that presents lots of uh, opportunities, lots of uh, difficulties as well in terms of layout. Obviously, when you're trying to work with maps and, uh, and land use, um, uh, payment schemes and things, then 
they like blank canvases and easily drawn maps and, and ours is is a is a mess really in, in that sense there's, there's trees and scrub in, in lots of places um so how are we going to work with that so we we came in uh, with approach that we're going to obviously use the shelter we've got and um manage the land for as much biodiversity as we can but with a bigger picture a longer picture of making the land more productive than what, what it could have been so basically raising the baseline of fertility um, raising the possible productivity of it uh, over time and using the trees and nature to do that uh, so right now we're increasing the amount of food we produce year on year starting small and then working up from that but the, the meantime our, our nature our biodiversity our shelter our soil all increases in health so we're taking uh, a long game um for for this but for a three hectare croft um it, it's it's difficult to make ends meet um economically but we will certainly want to work on it environmentally and uh, and see what's possible with the land uh, and that includes fruit trees fruit bushes essentially taking it down a kind of a small holding approach but with a lot of experiments along the way as well um but we're we're happy with the results so far and it's attracting a lot of attention no sounds good sounds good um so phil the idea with the podcast is that we discuss the topics that are affecting sectors involved in the farmed upland environment can you speak to the importance of the farmed upland environment for biodiversity what's your your standpoint on that the uplands uh particularly of Scotland, are incredibly uh, important for biodiversity in an in, uh, international and, and a national uh, sense. Um, my, my nature background has taken me all across Scotland. Um, and for our nature tours, we're frequently drawn to the upland environment. That's where we would be going to see a lot of our, our key mammals. That's where a lot of the, the kind of the key birds the, that folk really are drawn to Scotland to see, the, the, the eagles, the harriers, um, and a lot of the a lot of the woodland birds, woodland fringe birds, the waders in particular, uh, for, from a birding perspective, you know, that, that's where the majority of our, our, our wading birds uh, nest. Um, and of course, you start looking at uh, the smaller things as well, um, butterflies and, and moths and, and dragonflies and things, then, then our uplands and our upland fringes um, working with, with farmed environment, with forestry, with, with uh, common grazings, they make up a huge mosaic. And with that, that's quite a low intensity mosaic as well. We're not looking at uh, an environment that's worked incredibly hard. It's, it's worked within uh, within its own means, uh, relatively low chemical inputs, relatively low uh, uh, fertilizers and pesticides, um, relatively low disturbance as well. And so that lends itself to lots of animals uh, and uh, flora and fauna. With that as well, um, you've also got the... The, the aspect that is quite consistent as well. The management on the whole has been relatively consistent um, in some cases for, for centuries uh, and often for, for decades. And nature needs consistency. Nature needs time to build up and to, uh, to build up populations and to, to establish things and, and important food webs uh, and, and change is not something that's very popular. So the, the uplands present lots of, uh, lots of habitats uh, and a, a real range of habitats as well. Um, featuring many species in the UK sense that are, are in on the red list or amber list. But in Scotland, they're, they're holding their own. With all that in mind then, Phil, what's the current state of Scotland's biodiversity? Should we be optimistic about things? How, how are things looking? I, I'm, I'm a natural optimist uh, when it comes to a lot of things. 
but our, our, the biodiversity reports from, from a UK perspective certainly are, are not good reading at all. We, you know, we are in a biodiversity crisis as well as a, as a climate crisis. There's a whole range of factors uh, around that, um, but the, the farmed environment, yeah, could it be better for wildlife? Of course it could be better for wildlife. All, all aspects, all, all parts of uh, Scotland, um, the marine environment, uh, the, the, in the arable lowland environment, all of them could be better for wildlife. But at the same time, we've, we've got to, it's a living landscape. Um, we're producing food and we need to work on, on how we can do it uh, better uh, and more, uh, more joined up. But it needs support to do that. If we're going to change our farming system, uh, fair enough. Uh, there's good reasons for, for certain aspects to change, but we need support um, and we need a clear plan in advance uh, to do that because uh, we've been managing the land in a relatively consistent way for a long period of time. And if we're to change it, um, we're going to need a lot of retraining. We'll need a lot of help. Uh, and a lot of support um, and strong pillar, pillar support as well, not not just uh, annual payments, something with a long-term uh, plan. Yeah, yeah, couldn't agree more. Agriculture, Phil, makes up about 70-plus percent of Scotland's land use. To, to what extent is it responsible for the decline in biodiversity? Um, agriculture um, can sometimes be seen as an easy target when we're looking for, for um, a kind of scapegoat with, with regards to, to climate change and biodiversity decline. How fair is it or, or what proportion of responsibility does, does farming play in that? A, a, uh, <laughs> a very tricky question to answer on that one. Of course, a lot of the the, the land in Scotland is, uh, would you class as, as poor land in, in terms of the, the potential productivity of it, the geology, the hydrology, uh, uh, are, are against us. That basically, the, the rocks that are left, particularly over, over the, the northern and western parts of Scotland, are some of the most resistant and hardest and oldest rocks in the world. They don't let much water through. They don't free up many nutrients. They're not great for, for soil building. So it, it makes it a bit of a challenge uh, for a start. I, I would I would say the global food system is is more responsible for a lot of the biodiversity of decline than actual kind of uh, agriculture per se because it's it's been a case where where farmers particularly in, in marginal areas have to go with the, the direction of, of travel uh, of the markets uh, we've kind of become into a commodity market um, and that makes it very challenging for farmers to make a, a fair price and to have more freedom of choice as to how to manage the land if you've got a choice of doing something more sustainably or, or more profitably, then it it, it becomes uh, it can, becomes a, a difficult choice for for farmers. Um, government policy on that that thing has to has to decline. That has to accept that. And uh, as farmers, we we have to follow what's uh, where the payments are. It's incredibly difficult to make ends meet in farming in in Scotland, particularly in upland areas, and uh, we've been reliant on on support for for decades and so you need to make sure that that support uh, enables you to continue to produce high quality food but also with working with biodiversity and i think we've we've lost that and you can say the common agricultural policy and uh, being productivity driven uh, is largely responsible for that so let's let's look positively into the future and let's say okay let's redress that we're, we're, we're out of that now let's uh, how can we take this forward so you would argue that the the withdrawal from the cap is potentially a huge opportunity for Scottish agriculture. We, we have to see it as a, an opportunity, um, and it's we could say we were shackled by that. Obviously, it was incredibly 
successful in many aspects. The amount of uh, food we're producing across uh, Europe was was tremendous, but uh, at a cost. And I think particularly in some areas, and not, not just upland areas, in, in lowland areas in particular, with with the amount of inputs that, that go in there. There is a, a big pollution cost, uh, water quality and, and air quality uh, that comes with it. We know that our soils are in, in poor health. We're in a climate crisis, there's biodiversity uh, uh, crisis as well. So you, you've you've got to to look at the the bigger picture across Europe. Uh, and yeah, I, I would say the Common Agricultural Policy has a lot to answer for. But let's look at this as as a positive opportunity now. Um, and taking into factor as well public goods as a, as a new kind of a new concept for for farmers to take in as well um we've got a lot to work with brilliant brilliant no, that's good phil having set the scene quite comprehensively there and i know this is a, a big topic but um for farmers operating in the uplands today what are some of the steps that they can take to contribute to good conservation on their land a lot of the, the ideas uh, that we, we talk of in the Nature Friendly Farming Network, a lot of them are old and traditional uh, ideas about how land used to be managed. Uh, and then some of them are new from other parts around the world, taking into consideration uh, advances in, in science. Um, but I think in many cases, we can manage our land better and still have the same uh, outputs. Um, the same level of productivity, we have the same mix of, of agriculture if we so choose. Um, obviously, we're, we're, we're at a bit of a crossroads now and, and farmers want to know where we're going to, to head uh, in, in what direction of, of travel. We've obviously got the rhetoric coming from, from the government of, of uh, we need to do more for climate, we need to introduce more trees, we need to uh, tackle biodiversity. But how do we do that um, where there's very little payments schedule out there there's uh, that 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 presents us uh, with a real challenge because we've got ideas of conservation of course if you give over more land to nature of course you're going to have more nature um but at, at uh, who's who's paying for that how's that going to work are you going to dig more ponds are you going to to put in hedges where appropriate are you going to uh, let your flower meadows grow um, where appropriate um all of these things are, are quite easy gains and easy wins, um, but uh, it needs to be as part of a, a structured system because otherwise you're just doing it as a, as a hobby and for the love of it, uh, and that, that's just that's not going to work across Scotland. Yeah, yeah. So, Phil, if conservation does limit the productivity of farmland, do we know by how much and, and how how would we measure that? Measuring is is one of the things that that we're talking of. Uh, pretty much all the time now is, is how do we baseline um, productivity and nature and carbon, uh, all of these things that we're talking about and we kind of need metrics for. Where, where do we set a baseline for? Uh, I'll, I'll, for a start, are we just drawing a line now and starting again with, with the information? Because often say we, we've had declines uh, of, of 80% of one species, 20% of another and, and increases in 5% of, of another species. But that's based on, on basically the start of the data. We've only been recording scientifically and systematically for, uh, you know, in many cases, sort of 40, 50, 60 years. Um, and so you, where, where do you start from that? Where do you draw the line? And of course, you, you take it back 60 years. What was the farm environment like then? Uh, what was the world population like then? That things, uh, things shift considerably. 
uh, over time, and it can be a little bit unfair to say we've we've uh, lost uh, you know eighty percent of uh, our farmland birds or so. But it was a, a different environment back then uh, as well. So I, I'm of the thought of where do you baseline it for a start? Do you just start from now and work with it? Um, and from my perspective, which is uh, I've not heard too many folk suggest this, it's like well, you you look at the the wildlife, for example, that we've we've lost. Um, but that's that's of of a of a landscape that was consistent for a long period of time. So you, you had the wildlife that built up based on a certain, uh, say, hay meadow, uh, um, or um, or kind of mixed farming approach rather than kind of single species set stocking. Then then of course you're going to have wildlife that builds up and then then drops down. I think we should look now to well what can we get um, rather than let's let's try and get gray partridge back in all aspects it's like if you haven't got the habitat for it there is it worth creating habitat for example i i, I don't know or, or shall we farm produce food um and then just do it in a consistent and nature-friendly way and then let the wildlife build up around that we don't know what the wildlife's going to be in 20 30 years time um should we be living in, in a museum and, and working on a historic baseline or not or should we just allow nature to take the direction because uh half of insects are migratory most of the birds of course are migratory move around mammals can move around freely and so we don't know what our nature is going to be like in 20 30 years time so as with my personal argument is that um let's just work in a nature friendly way and let the nature build up and I, I, how, how we baseline it right now that is that's the million dollar question and i don't i don't have an answer for that I think, Phil, you've touched on something that's really interesting there. I do a lot of work with carbon benchmarking and carbon footprinting for, for farmers across Scotland. And it does strike me that Scottish government is able to develop climate change policies because we're now in a position where we can manage total emissions from farms and output. We can look at carbon sequestration from woodland and soils and peatland. But that's the same is not true for for biodiversity on on farmland and i suppose it is tricky because how do we get a consensus on the economic value of waders or the biodiversity benefit to that, that waders bring um for, for example and and with that of course there's so many factors that influence that it's not just nature-friendly management in fact to, to have waders uh, as you as addressed in other things then you often need predator control you need other other aspects to work and you often need to be working the landscape scale to have uh, you can have one farm doing lots of wonderful work for waders but if your neighbors are not doing that and they're not neighbors are not carrying out predator control or, or working in, in a nature-friendly way for waders then the whole population can just collapse anyway as we've found across vast areas of, of scotland and the same is true for, for lots of things so I, I'm, I'm someone who does a lot of work on on insects, invertebrates. Um, I, I do moth trapping of all things. So I, I, I'm a lepidopterist, so there's very few people that actually do moth trapping. Uh, and the moth populations are changing all of the time. And with climate change, um, we're actually gaining species in Scotland uh, rather than losing. Now we're losing a lot of specialist species as they as they go uphill. Um, that's, that's all, the only place they can go as, as the temperatures start to, to change is, is go up the hill. But on the whole, we're gaining more from, from down south. Um, the number, the sheer biodiversity is probably decreasing, but the, the species range is increasing. So again, are you, are you going to take a species of one thing and use that as a baseline for a particular species of moth or a particular species of butterfly? Are you, can you weigh biomass? You can't weigh biomass. You can't, can't work on that. Um, and of course, our habitats are very different. My, my geology 
uh, and topography is vastly different to a croft five miles away from me. It has completely different underlying geology. Superficially, they can look similar, but they have different species. Uh, I'm someone who knows the flowers and, and insects and things. I, I can tell that. But if you if you gave us a piece of paper and said, these are the benchmark species, uh, then we would have vastly different results. Um, and of course, every farm and every croft is, is different. So when you start extrapolating that, what a challenge. Um, what a challenge indeed. Do you know, Phil, the very first podcast that I ever recorded in this series um, was with our, our beef specialist, Robert Ramsey. And we were discussing the uh, the role of um, cattle in the farmed upland environment um, and the kind of general feeling that there was a bit of a retreat of productive agriculture from the hills and that there was this stagnation between areas that are going to be farmed and areas that are going to be left for conservation. Where do you stand on that issue? Is that a can that be a positive thing or is or would you like to see more integration there? Speaking from a from a sort of a local perspective here on Sky, what, what you often get, and this is where a lot of the kind of the rewilding arguments for me kind of can falter is if you've got quite a heavily grazed environment where a lot of the the flowering herbs and things have often been grazed away totally um or to a, to a low level uh, and a lot of the ranker species uh, a lot of the rushes and purple moor grass and things can build up to to, a, to dominate most of the vegetation for a start you've got a big fire risk um with those kind of flammable species but also there's, there's very little turnover in uh, plant species so, and so if you reduce the grazing on that what you actually have is is a is a whole area with relatively rank vegetation um, that can't really succeed it can't change over to anything else um, it doesn't really lend itself to um, to good biodiversity and so that, that gets held in kind of a negative stasis if you have cattle in those environments um, particularly in, in the summer months, uh, not too much poaching, but certainly uh, breaking it up, you really can have uh, more opportunities for, for floral diversity. And, and with that comes the invertebrates, comes the, the birds and things. So um, it, it, I would argue in many cases, we need more cattle uh, on the hill. Um, potentially, depend, not saying less sheep in, in any way at all. Uh, maybe we need to manage our sheep in, in slightly different ways. They, sheep are, are very good at seeking out the species uh, that they want to eat they they, they are they're, uh, they're creatures that will will find the most nutritious plants um within their little area um with cattle a little bit more generalist and of course there's a little bit more opening of the ground uh, as well so um for me seeing numbers of, of cattle and sheep decline across the commons uh, I, I think i think we could definitely do with uh, a bit more targeted uh, and thoughtful approach where absolutely we need animals in that environment for, for for our heathlands here um they would be a huge fire risk for decades to come if if the, the grazing levels go any lower and the biodiversity would not benefit uh, in my perspective so phil just to just to kind of switch lanes here um you're a crofter we, we talked a little bit about that earlier on in the recording but can you talk a little bit about crofting's contribution to tackling biodiversity decline the majority of crofts uh, would be what you class kind of high nature value farming. So uh, we've kind of, uh, across Europe, there's, there's lots of high nature value uh, areas. Crofting is certainly one of those. Uh, the, the northern and western fringes, which, which is where most of the crofts are on the islands and, and across uh, the western and uh, northern islands. Um, 
they they are low intensity farms or quite low input farms uh, as well um already holding a lot of biodiversity i think if you if you were to look back two or three generations i think we would have had more biodiversity on the actual in by uh, croft itself because we would have been managing it in a kind of a a, a more yeah, I suppose a more wildlife-friendly approach. There would have been more habitats in there. There would have been uh, vegetables. There would have been hay. There would have been areas uh, left. Uh, whereas most in by now across a lot of the crofting areas have been given over to to kind of set stocking of uh, particularly for well, a good good part of the year for sheep uh, and to a lesser extent cattle as well. So we've got a lot of biodiversity, um, but we we could have more and you can use something like the corn corn bunting or the corn craig or the tree sparrows as kind of a if you wanted to benchmark that as a, as a species they, they've declined massively in those areas um, with a slight increase in scrub um in in certain areas we we've uh, we've had an increase in other species you, you could say there's been other things that have come into the crofting uh, uh, environment now uh, and if I was to go out looking for stone chats and wind chats and willow warblers today, then I would be going on to the crofting area. So that, that that's they've definitely had uh, gains there. And you look at the, the bigger picture of things and some of the bigger species, uh, eagle numbers, certainly they're, they're heavily concentrated across the crofting counties. Golden eagles uh, have recovered well in the, in the 20th uh, and 21st century. And obviously white-tailed eagles have been reintroduced late in the 20th century and, and uh, are now thriving and so those crofting counties certainly hold large numbers of those birds and you can you can say the same for, for hen harriers you can say the same for, for pine martins and things like that all these uh, areas which um, i say that, that, and i think the low, low input aspect is is vital for that it's uh, not too intensive and uh, holds a large number of invertebrates that then feed the the, the food chain going all the way up perfect perfect Scottish government have been taking a series of, of actions against against climate change recently. We've seen new policies being developed. How do you feel about Scottish government's policies around biodiversity decline? And is there any um, top tips you would give to the Scottish government? Were you in a position to do that? The the rhetoric is great. Uh, absolutely, you know, we're addressing firstly the climate crisis and the secondly the biodiversity crisis. Um, and you know you have to prioritize the the, the climate crisis because our, our survival as a, as a species de- depends on that uh, and civilization depends on that um but for biodiversity uh, yes it's very easy to to pay lip service it's very easy to to visit uh nature reserves and and show good intent uh with that but we we need uh we need to make some relatively relatively bold decisions i i would say about how we're going to manage our land going forward if, if that's going to be uh, if biodiversity is to be a priority because other than that we, we can tickle around the edges um but i think if we're to seriously reverse biodiversity uh decline and use a lot of farmland to do that then it would involve quite large changes and that would be um that would have to be government driven of course because they have to be uh payment uh payment led for that and right now we're not really seeing uh, uh, we've got direction of travel, but we're not seeing any uh, any tools uh, and any clear plans as to how that will work. Um, and that that's what, as farmers and crofters and conservationists as well, we, we need to to have a have a picture there. Um, I, I think 
some of the debates have become quite polarized um, and essentially focus saying you take farming completely out of productivity uh, and you can you can rewild it totally uh, personally I, that's that's not an argument for me I, I think we can have more wildlife if you ask me do you want more wildlife of course the answer is yes and say but do you want to rewild vast areas of, of historic cultural uh, farmland which produces high quality food i would say uh not quite so drastic as that i think we can have both i think we can absolutely uh deliver for biodiversity and produce food um but using nature-based solutions potentially just changing the way we we operate the agri-environment climate scheme came back this year for another uh, restricted funding round this year did you welcome the return of eeks and um to what extent do you think the scheme has been successful in, in helping farmers transition to this more conservation-focused farming? That's, uh, the Nature Friendly Farming Network's absolutely welcomed uh, the return of EECS, and we, and we were part of the, the partners of, of ScotLink, uh, the kind of environmental uh, side, that, that uh, put a letter to the minister to, to thank uh, thank for the return of EECS. Um, it, it has delivered a huge number of benefits. The, the restricted round is, is obviously a little bit problematic and, and we can see a lot of projects that have delivered consistently for years with great data to show they've delivered for years. Now, unfortunately, not being able to, to meet any further funding and, and things will have to change there. So when you've had a, a slightly larger scheme and then you, you shrink back and restrict it, of course, there's going to be losses on that. Um, and you lose that consistency, don't you? And that—that that is that is such a shame. Of course, there's opportunities for a few new projects, slightly different targets, slightly different uh, um, way of, of developing it. Um, but we, we essentially need more like that. Um, but as a crofter, EECS is, is very inaccessible for for, croft, for, the, for the small holdings uh, and smaller farms. Uh, and so, so a lot of my neighbours and I were, were looking at them, and it's only the ones that uh, have uh, actually farms and not crofts that were able to to apply. So, um, when you look at the the amount of high nature value uh, crofting there is right now, none of it has, has been uh, well. It may well have been potentially eligible, but it hasn't been uh, viable for the farmer to to consider those. So, I'd like to see more schemes like EECS uh, available to all. And we have seen the development of some new schemes coming out in the past couple of years. I mean, working for waiters have been very good with their capital grant. Um, this year was the, the launch of the Nature Restoration Fund as part of uh, Nature Scott. So I, I do think that, that more schemes are, are on the way and, and not necessarily tied to the Scottish government, but um, certainly they'll have, have their own plans too. It's, it's a good direction of, of travel. It's... it's uh, it, to be accessible for all, it, it, it obviously just needs a bit more uh, money uh, in, in that direction. Um, and, the, and the other wider schemes, I guess, they're, they're probably tied into the, the, the public goods uh, trials and the, and the outcome-based uh, approaches, which have, have just started. So just on outcome-based uh, approaches, um, have you had any involvement in any of these projects that have, that have got going? Yeah, so I, I, I was involved here um, in the 
the the POBUS uh, scheme, which is the acronym for the the piloting of outcome-based approaches in in Scotland. So there's six areas for that across uh, Scotland, and I was involved in the the, the crofting uh, in by one, which is for Sky. And so for that, that was um, looking at uh, still maintaining livestock across uh, crofts, but managing the land in a, in a slightly different way. So essentially you would be scored based on, uh, I think some of the criteria looking at were floral diversity uh, and then sward height within that. So quite interesting metrics. And you could say if you're overgrazed, uh, if the grass is just too short and there's just not enough uh, floral species in there, um, then you, you wouldn't get a payment. At the same time, if it's undergrazed and was rank and very low species diversity, you would get no payment. So it's kind of that, that sweet spot in the middle ground uh, would work. But from a from a, a farming perspective, that that also works for the stock as well. Um, you, you're uh, uh, so if, if your spe- if your um, if your sheep and your cattle uh, are eating a more diverse sward full of flowers and herbs, then it's a, a healthier bite uh, for a start. Um, often more protein uh, in that mix as well, um, and and you're 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 also increasing biodiversity. Your you're increasing the soil health. You're probably increasing the, the soil depth with that as well. Um, taller herbs need taller root, uh, deep, deeper roots, uh, and that's good for for um, filtration uh, as well of uh, of water through that. So cleansing of the water going through that. So lots and lots of uh, potential wins, um, but still with keeping your uh, potentially same number of animals or maybe reduced. I don't know, um, but what with with that as a baseline, uh, I suppose you'd say you're also massively reducing your inputs potentially, uh, and then the, the economic viability can increase. That's kind of part of the, the nature-based solutions that, that could work. So I, I was very much in, in favour of the the, the trial uh, as it is. How you create a scorecard and how you baseline biodiversity again, we've we've touched on that earlier. That that is a challenge, and what species do you put in? Because if you you end up with a scorecard of of only say twenty or thirty flowering species, you end up with a homogenised landscape, uh, and some that, that obviously do count or don't count. Which flowers count? Which don't? Which grasses count? Which don't count? And how do you weight that? But I think the idea of having uh, ground that's not overgrazed and not undergrazed. Uh, and the working with floral diversity while still maintaining your, your stock, I, I think is is a good one. I think it's, it's a win-win. I've heard a lot of really good feedback actually coming out of Ireland. I know that they've been, been trialing um, and running uh, outcomes-based environmental schemes now for a while, um, and particularly some of the some of the findings around the uh, the pearl mussels um, in Ireland has been really encouraging. If I'm if I'm honest, I think one of the limitations of the eeks. Um, that, that we're operating here in Scotland was that to a certain extent it, it was difficult for farmers to to do the application themselves so it was quite inaccessible in that regard is that something that you're conscious of and is that something that when we're developing an outcomes-based approach that uh, farmers will be able to, to do themselves Yes, I agree. And I, I've seen some of the, the Irish case studies as well. And the Hen Harrier project is another good example of that, where the the criteria are clear. Um, it's uh, And and then the scoring is relatively easy. Now, with technology, as we, as we, we move forward, um, if it's done in an intelligent system, then it can work with uh, with uh, 
simple computer case, computer systems and algorithms and, and apps even. And I've seen a lot of the apps uh, working there. These are apps that can also identify the flowers. They can look at all sorts of other things. They can geotag and exactly locate where you are. You can record your own data uh, as you go. Now, I'm not saying that the apps and technology are for everyone, but it, it would massively simplify that if you don't have to go through um, a whole world of, of technical jargon, if you don't have to get a glossary out to, to work on it, if you certainly don't have to go down incredibly complex maps. Obviously, more and more of our maps are becoming digital. And once we've got a, uh, an agreed um, uh, baseline of that, then it's very easy to, to transpose further data onto. Um, so I, I, I am optimistic on, on, on that side of things that I think we can work with that going forward. And I've seen a lot of the work behind the scenes um, and I, I think I think it's 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 a very good direction for us. We've both just in the last five minutes there talked about Ireland freshwater pearl mussels. You mentioned Hen Harrier. Are there any other conservation projects happening in the wider world that uh, have really impressed you, Phil? That you've you've been made aware of? I, I've been lucky enough to travel um, all over the world, really, with uh, with nature. Uh, nature tours uh, and so it's taken me to a lot of the wildest places uh, particularly I've been to most countries across Europe looking at nature and time and time again I get drawn back to uh, farming landscapes as, as part of that um, and it, and it's often the, the consistent traditional management which is uh, continued uh, that really has the, the high biodiversity level as well as the huge cultural level and I think in Scotland we've, we've kind of we've We've missed that a little bit, really. Um, we still we still revere a lot of our upland management as, as cultural and, and historical, but actually, there's there's not much going on that would be instantly recognisable to to folk from three or four generations back. Whereas in, in parts of Eastern Europe and, and a lot of the national parks I've been across there, uh, things still haven't changed uh, a huge amount in in, uh, in centuries. And so the the biodiversity, level, particularly things like the the butterfly levels, uh, are incredible they're absolutely incredible um so it's it's uh, we, we can't live in a museum uh by any means but we can certainly learn from a lot of our european partners uh that have gone through a similar journey to us as well uh, and even in spain i've been in, in, in northern spain there a lot of the uplands very very similar to uh to scotland particularly on the atlantic slope on the, on the northern side in uh, uh asturias and places like that and uh, galicia and, uh, along the coast uh, and those those areas there, they've gone through what was a, a high population, uh, relatively high intensity uh, farmland in the uplands that then declined um, through a farming system. And, and essentially the, the same time as, uh, as it started for us, but we've kind of kept it going for longer. But there they've, they've really embraced um, wildlife and wildlife tourism. Um, so still traditional management of farms where where possible, um, but also looking at uh, how you can manage the land, um, still produce food, still be an important cultural landscape uh, at the same time. And there's, there's good examples. And I think we're, we're a bit behind in, in Scotland. And I know that you, you touched on this very briefly earlier on, but um, where do you stand on the issue of rewilding and, and reintroduction of species to, to Scotland? Obviously, there's a there's a lot of uh, a lot of pressure to see some of that happen now. Uh, just wondering what your what your thoughts are. 
rewilding certainly has, has become a very divisive term where it shouldn't be uh, in many ways. But I, I suppose the, the, the term itself is, is a bit confusing. You're saying rewilding, so are you saying um, bringing back uh, wildlife that was there? And, and what is your baseline for that? Are you saying after the last ice age? when people were just starting to arrive here, saying 8,000 years or, or so, or are you, are you going back a couple of generations? It's I, I, it's it's a bit of a strange term for me. I say, if you ask anyone, do you want more nature? The answer is yes. Every, every, everyone wants more nature. Um, how we go about delivering that is, 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 uh, is the, is the tricky part of it, but, uh, rewilding is is can be seen as as a, a kind of a potential new clearance of the land uh, by some circles. Yeah, are you taking people and all farmed management out of the environment and seeing what happens? I think that's that's what some of the rewilding uh, ideas are. I'm not for that. I think it's a living landscape. I think it's a cultural landscape. I think people we need more people uh, across the land. That doesn't mean that the biodiversity will, will suffer uh, as a consequence. I think we can absolutely have both. Um, a lot of the rewilding areas, of course, you're saying maybe t- some of the larger deer estates and things. I, I don't really have uh, much of an uh, opinion on that. I, I certainly things with wolves and and bears. I think we absolutely need more habitat uh, back across Scotland. Lynx, I think, is an interesting debate. Uh, I think that's certainly one that, that is likely to happen in, in my lifetime. Um, seems to be a, a good direction of uh, travel on that one. Um, but I think for, for other larger predators, we, we need more habitats uh, back. And, and beavers obviously feature uh, prominently in Scotland um, through um, uh, reintroduction and then uh, some illegal moves as well uh, across Scotland. But now they're in and protected. Uh, I think they're, they're broadly welcomed by the, the populations uh, across the country. And in, you, do, you see in all corners of England now, beavers are popping up uh, everywhere through, through uh, various schemes, whales as well. Um, so we need to be, having had them the, the longest in Scotland, I think we need to be embracing the beavers as a species um, and working with it. And, and where appropriate, compensate um, farmers. And where appropriate, be robust as well. And if that means destroying dams, if that means removing uh, individuals, then, then so be it. And that's the way the Scandinavians uh, deal with it. It's, it's a robust attitude. If you're going to have to live alongside them, then there will be conflict. And it's just about managing that uh, consistently, regularly and and quite quickly uh, and overall I think biodiversity will will increase but we're, we're in a bit of a mindset shift because we've been so long without large predators so long without beavers it's got an alien thought a lot of the re- rewilding argument you could say is is kind of uh, urban driven and driven from from down south as well kind of uh, romantic ideas of, of what Scotland and the uplands could could be like for people who don't actually live there um, I, and I, I think we need to to yeah work with the folk who actually live in the landscape here uh, to to address that. We all want to see more nature, and I think it's it's probably be a, potentially a little bit slower. Certainly, um, certainly with working with the habitats first. Let's build up a higher baseline of uh, of invertebrates and small mammals and small birds before we start throwing the big guns in. Yeah, yeah. So I, I've uh, cards on the table here. I'm a big proponent of reintroduction of elk into Scotland. Um, and uh, but I am I'm conscious I'm I'm aware that that we maybe lack the the woodland and wetland habitat that would make that uh, make that viable at this point. But uh, we'll uh, we'll wait and see how things how things develop. Um, it's uh, certainly an interesting discussion. 
Right now, I think uh, you know the number of birch trees and things that are springing up, and willow scrub that's springing up in a lot of places, whether through decline of grazing, through on, on deer estates, or or through like destocking, um, or, or decline of, of areas. That there certainly is a lot of scrub appearing, and then those kind of species would would fit in very very well. Phil, I'm just going to wind down the the podcast now, if that's okay. I I don't want to take up too much of your time this morning, um, but I always ask this to my guests. My, my final question is, um, what activity have you seen happening recently within the industry that you think more people should be paying attention to? Is there any good practice or any innovative ideas that you want to, to draw attention to? I think for me, Axon, I think we're the, the buzzwords are, are certainly around agroforestry, and I, I certainly see the benefits uh, of that. So agroforestry is 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 not forestry per se it's not it's not just blanket planting of, of species uh it's it's more integration of life so you can, so in some aspects it could be silver pasture it could be uh, having uh, cows and sheep within uh, that you could be mixing species up um but it has applications across almost all farmed environments in the uk and in, in scotland in particular essentially just bringing uh, more shelter into the environment, uh, which has uh, health benefits for, for for animals. Obviously, it's better for growing things uh, on the whole with more shelter. We're a very wind, windy and wet environment. Um, but as well as that, there's the deeper rooting aspect of it, nutrient cycling, um, and the biodiversity side of things as well. If you've got a landscape with, with more biodiversity, and generally you're struggling with less pests as well. Um, so bringing more uh, predatory insects and more birds and mammals uh, into situations uh, gets away from some of the monocultures, which can can lead to to pests building up, uh, and we we absolutely need uh, um, more trees for for carbon sequestration as well. So I think it's it's win win, and we can work with technology. We can we can make tree rows. We can uh, we could work with protecting individual trees in, in pastoral situations, and from what I'm seeing on uh, in in some crofts, uh, we can we can. We can grow fruit on sky, for goodness sake. You know, there's, there's lots of uh, there's lots of potential that we just didn't think was was out there. And in a few short years of of hedges and tree cover, um, you can improve your pasture, you can improve your soil, uh, you can still have the the stock that you you had in, in the field originally, but you can also have uh, fruit bushes as well. It's, it's it's amazing the potential. Fantastic. Well, Phil Knott, um, on behalf of the Farm Advisory Service, I'd just like to thank you for coming on today. It's been really good to sit down and chat with you. Well, thanks for, for having us, Alexander. Very much appreciated.